0: and welcome to Diddy and Hawthorne and the In Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gents. Now, bookmark that book, and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, and herzlich willkommen to unserem podcast. Today, today, we will be beginning our much-anticipated series on the novel Bleak House by Charles Dickens. The first and probably most salient point for those of you who are accustomed to reading along with a show when we do series like this a la Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace is what makes me a good candidate for reading the Bleak House book along with the Bleak House series. Timing is always a big factor when planning for these kinds of reads, and I have given you as much notice as possible by updating our homepage at relevanceofliterature.com with the show calendar of this particular series. We'll be doing the episodes, as I'll explain in more detail later, in five different installments, which I'll call Bleak House Weeks. These weeks will consist of two episodes minimum on Bleak House. One, that's a more plot, character, general overview, and the second, that gets into the nitty-gritty of all I want to say about the text. Also, a couple notes for people who are going to be reading Bleak House along with us. Familiarity with the style of writing, this is 1850s English, not modern English, that we're reading here. This is not going to be like our last book we reviewed, Anxious People by Frederick Bachman. This is going to be a much denser style for a lot of you, especially people who are not as used to this style or era maybe of reading. Familiarity also with Dickens might be important for those of you who are looking to get a lot out of this book in terms of the actual style that Dickens takes on. Dickens uh, has a very preeminent style of writing at this time period and a lot of Dickensisms, for lack of a better term, are going to come up and those are going to be interesting and I think notable to bring up as we continue along in the series. So if you can catch those yourself while you're reading this the first time before the show, that is only going to help you in the long run. Also understanding how to read more complex, drawn-out novels like Russian literature, for lack of a better comparison, any sort of books like Crime and Punishment, Anna Karenina, those are corollaries to Bleak House in the sense that they are long, their plots are winding and complex. Bleak House is one of the most complex novels that Charles Dickens ever wrote, and so... The milieu of characters and plot threads and intersections that we're going to come across, even within the first couple hundred pages in these first two episodes, our first Bleak House week, uh, is quite impressive actually, and quite uh, takes a lot of. The various writing on my part and a lot of piecing together um, that an experienced reader can do fairly well, but it might take you a bit to get into this style of writing uh, in terms of the complexity and just the length and the breadth of it if you're not used to it early on. So that deals with the length itself. There's less wins in this novel. It's not like you're going to read 200 pages and have the benefit of putting another novel on your list for the year. This is going to be a process of months and months of reading, and I've already gotten way into the months and months of reading myself, so I am right in the trenches with you. Also, as I said, the scope of the plot and the subplots, there's an overarching broad sense to this book which we'll talk about, and there's also a very minute uh, sense to this book of the page to page, word to word. Most importantly though, you are set to read this novel if you really want to. (laughs) This is your excuse, Our, our series is my excuse to read this novel, I've been wanting to read it for almost two or three years now, so I decided to make a series about it, you're welcome. We are going to dive into the complexities and the triumphs of this book all together and it's important for you to really want to get through each section of the book along with us. If you don't want it, you're not going to do it. (laughs) You're going to procrastinate on it and it's going to be a much harder time and probably a lot less fun uh, than it's really meant to be in an overview and a reading guide like this. History of the Novel, Overview of Episodes Bleak House, published in serialized form between 1852 and 1853, and later in novel form, is the second novel after David Copperfield in what I would call the second half of Dickens' chronology of novels. In comparison with the first half of his publications, which were overtly humorous and largely explore one to two principal characters in detail, Novels of his published after 1850 in the second half of his career harped more on complex narration with a more fundamental balance of energy and time and space between characters. However, Dickens is Dickens, and you will hear me talk over and over again in this series about Dickensisms like recurring character tropes, similarities in language, and other overall absurdities that are common to Dickens' writing. One Dickensism that prevails in Bleak House on the Broadview is Dickens' aptitude for writing social criticisms, in this case about the English Court of Chancery, a legal court system at the time that Dickens sums up on page 108 in the voice of John Jarndyce as a agglomeration, which is to say that it is, quote, vastly ceremonious, wordy, unsatisfactory, and expensive." Bleak House originally debuted as a set of 20 serializations. In today's version of the novel, those serializations have been broken up by way of the plot into 67 chapters. In our case, this series on Bleak House will take place in five installments over the course of the next four months through July, with one installment to arrive once every three to four weeks. We will be splitting up the book into parts based on its original serialization in quantities of four. Thus, this week's installment is about the first four serializations of the novel, the second installment will be on serializations 5 through 12, and so on. Generally, I will be publishing two episodes for each section during our Bleak House weeks, one on the general plot and characterizations of the novel, that is, this episode on the broader scope of the novel. And one on the nitty-gritty details, passages I find to be inventive or profound, ways of characterizing vocabulary. It's these second episodes to be published later in the week on Thursday or Friday that we'll be making use of our finer tools of analysis to get into the trenches of how Bleak House was written, page to page, and why. The question of addition edition is only as good as the experience of the person reading that edition. So while I will recommend a couple of features of any edition of Bleak House that you might pick up in your future reading for leisure or to follow along with the show, which I suppose is also for leisure, the experience that you have as a reader is only going to help and only going to influence the work of the edition I liken it to having a really wonderful car and not knowing how to drive it. Similarly, if you have a really wonderful edition of Bleak House and you don't know how to use it, it's not going to do you much good. Things you need in the edition for sure, at least in my estimation of these kinds of books, I've read a lot of them over the years. And these are the things that I rely on daily while I'm reading these kinds of novels. Number one, a good introduction of the text. A good introduction is an introduction by a scholar of either that author, that work, that time period, that country that the novel is set in or was written in. Um, I rely a lot on the introduction I'm a huge introduction junkie in fact and what the introduction does is it gives you a great overview of the text it gives you moments within the text to focus on and pinpoint um, not only when you are getting into the text and you don't know anything about it but when you are going along reading you might remember a couple things from the introduction if it's a good one and it's one that draws you in to the kinds of themes that are pertinent throughout the plot. A good introduction will also cross-compare that author's works uh, to the one that you're reading, and so if you are not a Dickens aficionado, as I am not, I've read several of his works, but I don't come even close to being professional on Dickens. Uh, or a scholar on Dickens uh, gives you a really good couple of points of reference so if you have had a couple of experiences in the past that relate to Dickens you can use those to their best gusto when you're reading and it's just a good place to start so a good introduction does exactly that it introduces you to the text it gives you a bearing on what you're about to start reading Number two, serialization dates and chapter correlations. Also super important, especially for this particular series. We're going by these serializations in quantities or numbers of four, as I said, and so understanding which serializations which would correspond to which chapters are going to be important for following along just in general. I also think it's interesting to read through the book as if you are a reader from the 1850s and you only have serialization to serialization. Um, It doesn't mean that obviously we're following the time scale of Someone from the 1850s, this book was published in serializations over the course of 11 months or so, as I said earlier, I think a little less than 11 months. Long time. We're reading this book in a series of four months. But again, it's interesting and I think it's also something that gives you a lot to think about as a reader when you're reading it as the text was initially supposed to have been read. Number three. Footnotes, and specifically footnotes describing Latin terms and sayings from older English. English has changed. If I were to talk to you like a character from Bleak House, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast because it would be some fanfiction society of some sort. Um, not to say that those are bad. English has changed to the extent that a lot of times the phrases and little catchisms that Dickens will include have fallen out of favor. They are no longer meaningful to us in the way that they would have been to a reader of Bleak House at the time of its initial publication. Therefore, we need some help. If you would like to go through Bleak House with untranslated Latin, French, and German, be my guest, but for me, personally, footnotes are the way to go. Finally, number four, an annex of legal and other terms or additional research on the novel. So, if your edition does not have an annex that describes things like the Court of Chancery, the setup of the legal system at this time, which is good to have an understanding of, especially for the intricate beginning of this novel, for sure. Uh, you can always do your own additional research. We have the internet nowadays, <laughs> which always helps. Um, but again, it's good to have a basic understanding of the law and different professions, for example, and how the Court of Chancery operated at that time, as this book is ultimately a commentary on all of those people and all of those systems. Some things that are optional for the book include endnotes. If you are an Endnotes person, be my guest. I gravitate uh, either way. I'm not like an Endnotes champion, but I'm also not (laughs) someone who completely disregards them. Sometimes I'll do a close reading of a chapter and pay attention significantly to the Endnotes. Other times I will just loosely browse them. Uh, For example, at the end of every serial, It just depends. I don't think they're necessary for a reading of a novel like Bleak House, but they can add some information about, for example, the historical time period that the footnotes will not add by way of the footnotes are directly attached to bits of language, whereas the endnotes are attached to general themes. Pictures. Pictures are optional as well. Uh, A lot of people might say, why would you want pictures in your edition of Bleak House? I have them in mind. I have uh, historically read books by Charles Dickens with pictures in them. I think they add a lot to uh, your mental representation of what's going on in the novel, and I like what the artist's interpret within the text that is often different in significant ways from what I'm seeing and interpreting. I like pictures, they are of course optional in versions of Bleak House. Maps, similarly some people like the maps of Dickens's London that are in the beginnings of these kinds of books. I never look at them. I'm terrible at geography and maps in general, so again, it's up to you. It depends on how much use you would get out of it. My edition, the Barnes & Noble Classics edition, does come with all of these things, and it's interesting to look at, but again, unnecessary in these optional parts. Also, finally, a biography of Dickens. This is something that could be included in your edition. It is in mine or it could just be something you look up online. It's important to know, you know, Dickens had a really interesting life, not only as an author, but socially as well. And it's important to understand the kinds of things that went into his writing and where he got his material from in order to read the complex, different situations that we're going to get into in Bleak House. Like I said a moment ago, I will be using the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of this book. You can read about the edition and <laughs> look it up for yourself at relevanceofliterature.com notes. That is also where all of the source material from what I have just spoken in my intro has come from. Uh, there will be links to all of that, of course, at the show note for this episode. Overview of the plot, serials one through four. All right, I am going to be going through the plot of the first four serials, A Bleak House. I'll be shouting out the chapter names and numbers as I go as well, just for clarity's sake. We'll start with chapter one, of course, in Chancery. This is the beginning of serial one. We start on page 17 at the beginning of the novel. Quote, London. Michaelmas term lately over, and the Lord Chancellor sitting in Lincoln's Inn a hall. Implaceable November weather. As much mud in the streets as if the waters had but nearly retired from the face of the earth, and it would not be wonderful to meet a megalosaurus, forty feet long or so, waddling like an elephantine lizard up Holborn Hill. Smoke lowering down from chimney pots, making a soft black drizzle with flakes of soot in it as big as a full-grown snowflake, gone into mourning one might imagine for the death of the sun. Dogs, undistinguishable in mire. Horses, scarcely better. splashed to their very blinkers. Foot passengers jostling one another's umbrellas in a general infection of ill-temper and losing their foothold at street corners, where tens of thousands of other foot passengers have been slipping and sliding since the day broke, if this day ever broke, adding new deposits to the crust upon crust of mud, sticking at those points tenaciously to the pavement and accumulating at compound interest. Unquote. Again, that was page 17, the beginning of the novel. We have got a bleak introduction <laughs> to Bleak House. Uh, At the center of this desolate scene in London is the Court of Chancery, which is introduced in the next couple of pages. Really what's interesting is that when we meet Bleak House itself, it's not as bleak as the Court of Chancery, which says quite a bit about the novel as it's introduced um, in this way of this soot and this mire in the London streets, this desolate fog that it gets into in the next uh, passage. The court at the center of all of this, and I will say that the Lord Chancellor is at the center of the court, at the center of this desolate scene, the court is discussing Jarndyce and Jarndyce, which is a court case that is so complex that it's said no man understands it completely. It's been twisted and turned for so long in the court of chancery that people have died out of the suit and been born into it. At the center of the suit are two young wards, Ada and Richard, who will meet later, and they are requesting to live with their cousin, A. One, Mr. Jarndyce. <laughs> Let's read the end of the chapter, page 23. This is a passage describing the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case, as well as the Court of Chancery. Quote, if all the injustice it has committed and all the misery it has caused could only be locked up with it, and the whole burnt away in a great funeral pyre, why so much the better for other parties than the parties in Jarndyce and Jarndyce. unquote. We have a really dark setup here for the Court of Chancery that gets lighter and lighter as the book continues. Let's move on to chapter two in fashion. A different scene is set here with different characters completely, although it's just as desolate (laughs) as the Court of Chancery. It's just as mired in fog and indeed uh, Lincolnshire is just outside of London, we have a one Lady Dedlock and her husband Sir Leicester Dedlock, they receive a visit from their lawyer, Mr. Tolkinghorn, who is a very formal figure dressed very reservedly but formally uh, in all black, very old, honorable kind of wardrobe and figure in general. Mr. Tolkinghorn will figure greatly in the rest of this section and indeed the rest of the book. So. It's good to pay attention to him now. Lady Deadlock is involved in Jarndyce and Jarndyce. She is one of the people who have matriculated into the case by way of years and relations. She has no other family and has married into this Leicester uh, baron, baroness type family. There's a scene at the end where she is sitting with Sir Leicester Dudlock and Mr. Tolkinghorn, while well, Mr. Tulkinghorn is reading about the proceedings of the case that day in Chancery and she's sitting before this great fire and there's this stifling fog outside coming seeping it seems like into the house and she's having this screen in front of her face to try to screen herself from the fire and it comes to a head in a moment and she gets ill and has to leave. Before she does get ill and leave, though, she notices a specific hand, uh, and that is handwriting that is very particular, and Mr. Tolkienhorn takes note of her noticing. Chapter 3, A Progress. We have a new narrator before this, omniscient narrator, a <laughs> uh, quite humorous omniscient narrator, I might add, who is... Uh, it seems to me a bit sarcastic at times, and uh, does do a good job, as every omniscient narrator does, of surveying the scene, so to speak. But there's some there's some opinion in this omniscient narrator, I will say, and part of that opinion is expressed in the second chapter with the narrator talking about the fashionable intelligence, which is themselves. <laughs> a very interesting change of hands takes place though with this chapter we have esther who is our first person narrator esther we get her whole life story in this chapter it's a longer chapter she grows up essentially despondent under an old tyrant of an aunt this aunt really doesn't show her much affection or love whatsoever she has no acquaintances at school because her aunt makes and takes care To set her apart from her pupils, so she grows up alone, and it's, yeah, it's quite tragic in my opinion. The aunt dies, and a lawyer steps into the scene. His name is Kengi from Kengi and Carboy, one of the lawyers involved in the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case. Mr. Jarndyce, A1, Mr. Jarndyce, the same Mr. Jarndyce as the two wards from before, Ada and Richard is willing to grant Esther the equivalent of expectations from great expectations in return for her loyalty. So in other words, Mr. John just pledges to give her a stipend to live on and give her a means of life and a position in return for her loyalty to him. She is shifted off to become what is essentially a governess in a girl's home, and she teaches for the next six years until she gets a letter from the lawyers, that is Kangi and Carbway again. This time, she is shifted off to London and directly to the Court of Chancery. There at the court, she meets the young wards, Ada and Richard, and this is the point interestingly at which her storyline catches up finally with where we were in chapters one and two she meets the wards as i said and all three of them join up with r2 join up with mr Jarndyce at bleak house chapter four telescopic philanthropy bleak house is quite a drive from london it's about a bit more than half a day's drive, so they have to spend the night at an acquaintance of Mr. Jarndyce's Mrs. Jellyby. Mr. Jarndyce is a philanthropist and he knows Mrs. Jellyby from his philanthropy work. Mrs. Jellyby is a an interesting figure, <laughs> to say the least. She is involved in an African coffee philanthropy mission and is involved in that to the extent that her household is falling apart. When they enter the household, it's very dirty. Things are constantly misplaced. In fact, it's unclear whether those things like the kettle, for example, have a place in the first place. Um, Clearly, again, there's no housekeeper. There are children everywhere getting into all sorts of injuries and mishaps and conundrums. The children are very dirty themselves. There is lots going on, and in the midst of it is Mrs. Jellybee dictating a letter to one of her African counterparts by way of her oldest daughter, who acts as a scribe for her. This oldest daughter is covered from head to toe in ink and is overall a miserable representation herself of everything going on at the Jellybee house. Esther and her newfound friends, Ada and Richard, are able to settle in quite interestingly into uh, this particular scene at the Jelly Bee house and. There at night is a visit, Esther gets a visit, from the oldest jellybee daughter, the scribe, and this daughter is just inconsolable with grief for her situation and the situation of her family. She's very resentful, for example, towards her mother, and the night passes with her in just grief with Esther. Serial number two. Chapter 5 A morning adventure It is the morning and nothing is better than <laughs> jellybees Esther Richard Ada and the young Miss Jellybee, the scribe go on a walk about London before they go to Bleak House. They on the way uh, around their walk they encounter an old lady who is a an audience member for lack of a better description. Of the Court of Chancery, this old lady I'm going to talk about in the second episode, which is going to air later this week, Thursday or Friday. Because there's a lot to discuss about her, (laughs) so no worries. We will pick up on the details of her and where she's mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter 3 when we get there on Thursday. They end up getting roped into coming to this old lady's room when they're on this walk and they do because they want to be polite and the old lady is very insistent and neither of them in the party are thinking okay we don't have much time to spend so we'll just go up and then go right back down <laughs> the old lady ends up uh it turns out that she lives in a second hand at the top of a secondhand law goods shop And the owner of that shop and the letter of the rooms is a one Mr. Crook and he has a cat (laughs) that is very well trained, might I add, uh, who acts as sort of a projection of emotion for him, is how I read it. The old lady is quite poor and she lives in these interesting, very minimalistic conditions. There's no food in her room. There's very little in the way of heat and blankets and such, and the lady also has a menagerie of birds in her room that she keeps just for fun, so to speak. Seems like she takes them in when they're injured and then has trouble letting them go. And on the way out, they pass another room that's being let, and there's a whispering about that other room being let to a man who has sold himself to the dark side all very mysterious. Chapter six, quite at home. They finally make it in this long journey in chapter six to Bleak House. I will spare you the horse-drawn carriage. The journey ends with cousin John Jarndyce, and I'll be talking about him with cousin John, that nomenclature for the rest of the series, probably, (laughs) because there are so many jaundices that we really need a nickname, so I'm glad that Dickens gave us one. (laughs) Cousin John. Bleak House, the house itself, is maze-like, but it's really eclectic and it's cozy. Esther, our narrator, quite likes it, There's half-finished paintings and frescoes and other artistic ventures everywhere, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, Those are drawn by a friend of Cousin John's named Skimpole. Essentially, they settle into the house. Esther gets the keys to keep the house and she becomes sort of a lady's maid for the house, for lack of a better description. They meet Skimpole eventually and he is basically a child. He's middle-aged, but he is has no more morality or development than a child. He is old, and he understands age and philosophy and such, but he just doesn't buy into the society of responsibility at all, and so he refuses... Uh, to learn or understand anything about money, for example, anything about responsibility or obligation, for example, with marriage or with his children. So he lives under the care of Cousin John as a (laughs) half-artist. He has uh, some stock in music, some in painting, some in other endeavors, as the house definitely protrudes. So He's an interesting character and one that we will be checking in on as well. At the end of the evening, Ada is singing and playing the piano, as was the fashion back then, and Esther and Richard get called into Skimpole's room, and it turns out he's being arrested for debtor's prison on behalf of, I think, 23 and some shillings, and or pounds, and... Esther and Richard decide to bail him out of Debtor's Prison because they have that much between them. John, cousin John, later figures out what's going on with the Debtor's Prison ordeal, says, look, this happens every other week, let me pay you back, (laughs) and the affair ends thus. Chapter 7, The Ghost Walk. This is my second favorite chapter in the entire Serials series (laughs) today, uh, I really enjoyed the the break that we have from the two main narrative threads, one about the deadlocks and one about Esther and her friends. Uh, this does take place at the Leicester deadlock household in Lincolnshire. Um, the house is called Chesney Wald, that's the name of the house, just for reference, and we are here with The housekeeper, Mrs. Rouncewell, she has her grandson there to visit, as well as her maid, Rosa, who is quite beautiful and quite bashful. And when she gets bashful, she becomes more beautiful, and it's this endless cycle in this character that's very interestingly shallow, in my opinion. They are there exchanging stories about the household and just about life in general when Guppy, who is a representative of the lawyers in the Jarndyce case, and his friend, on behalf of those lawyers, visit Chesney Wald for a tour of the house, which is conducted by Rosa, the young maid. Guppy, in the tour, is quite taken with Lady Dedlock's portrait. He insists that he knows person in the portrait uh lady Dedlock, that is or some likeness of her and that's a key that we'll definitely be diving into at some later point point. and it ends with guppy leaving and his friend leaving and the housekeeper mrs rouncewell telling the ghost's walk story which is that in hundreds of years ago <laughs> in in this narrative there is a husband and wife living at Chesney Wald, and the wife is politically against the husband at that time, and she was known for laming horses that, are, that belonged to her husband's friend. Her husband was very active politically, and so she would lame their horses as a retaliation against him and these politics. While she is about to lame his favorite horse in the stable. He comes up on her and something happens to where she gets injured and she gets lamed herself so she has this terrible limp and she's like walking and almost dead. And she essentially stops talking to her husband and walks up and down this little walk behind the house up and down all day until her husband confronts her and she dies on the spot and says, I'm going to continue walking up and down this walk. <laughs> I like the ghost story campfire aspect of this last little bit because it's so different from what we've heard and had from, from the last couple of chapters in this, the beginning of this book. Chapter 8, covering a multitude of sins. This is the beginning of serial number 3. Esther learns from Cousin John that *Jarndyce and Jarndyce* is about a contested will. So there was a very wealthy Jarndyce a long time ago that has a contested will. There is another person in the family who said, hey, I want some of this money. <laughs> and there is a lot of argument about where the money should go, who the rightful heirs of this particular Jarndyce were, Tom Jarndyce, the predecessor of John Jarndyce at Bleak House, tried to solve the suit and came to an unfavorable end. That is not kid-friendly, so I won't discuss it here. He sacrificed everything for this suit. He let his house, Bleak House, go into complete disrepair, as well as his other property in London. He literally everything, every bit of his energy was tied up in trying to figure out this particular suit in Jardis and Jardis. Cousin John takes over for him, does not care about trying to solve the suit himself. Uh, He instead gets tied up, as I said, in philanthropy. There's a lot of mail that Esther starts to go through as the lady of the household. And there is a visit from a woman named Mrs. Pardiggle who has five sons. She's also a philanthropist and she is a piece of work, sort of like Mrs. Jellybee, I might add. She makes all of her five sons give up their entire allowances to charity in essentially what is a false display of charity of her family and her own affections. They visit this brickmaker in town and this woman is not nice to the brickmaker. They're in the whole family is in dire straits. They're extremely impoverished and it turns out that there is a dead child that has just died in the mother's arms in this house ada and richard and esther visit the brickmaker family later after this woman leaves mrs pardiggle Uh, and it's just a really awful situation that gets tied up into the whole narrative uh might i mention right after this discussion of will and money and estate chapter nine signs and tokens Cousin John, turns out, is related to Sir Leicester Dedlock. This is something that we should keep in mind. All of the characters are somewhat related <laughs> thus far, as we know, um, and they are all related to the Dronjas and Dronjas case in addition to that. Richard is quite childish. He doesn't take care of his money or his time or his affections very carefully, and he's being pressed to think about some sort of career that he's going to go into. He can't just laze around talking to Ada all day, although I'm sure he'd like that. Esther kind of becomes the matronly mother figure. She is the person in charge of household things at this point, so it is natural she is a little older than Ada and Richard, but essentially she sits there watching Ada and Richard fall in love, which I found quite melancholy in the sense that why doesn't Esther get any affections or any love in that way? Why does she have to watch and relate this whole situation? In the midst of this, there's another visit from a friend of Cousin John. His name is Boythorn. He has a little bird that's quite adorable that we'll talk about in uh, the next episode. The deadlocks are his neighbors. And he is suing them on behalf of this little passageway between the estates, and there's a lot more animosity between them that I think is even called for. But again, this is about the ridiculousness of society, so it does fit here. Guppy comes and visits Boythorn. Guppy, again, is a representative of Kangi, the lawyer behind Jarndis and Jarndis, and really the interesting thing that occurs on behalf of this visit is that guppy proposes to esther it's very it comes it comes out of the blue in my opinion that yeah he gets all gussied up and then he proposes to esther and Esther's like who are you <laughs> and it's a very awkward weird moment in <laughs> this little narrative that we have chapter 10 the law writer This chapter starts with a characterization of Mr. Snagsby, who is a law stationer with a couple apprentices, very standard kind of stationer. Uh, He's related to court by way of being someone who's in charge of law documents and writing and copying them. Mrs. Snagsby is really the queen of his life, though. He calls her his little woman and she has a really great hold on him. It's said that her voice is the voice of both of them. They also have a, from what I know, a live-in assistant slash adoptee. Her name is Guster, who's very fastidious. Tolkienhorn comes and visits Mr. Snagsby in order to figure out who whose handwriting it was that interested Lady Dedlock when they went to visit, and it turns out it's this person named Nemo. Nemo, though, means no one in Latin, so it's some sort of pseudonym for this person who has no name. The only thing that Mr. Stagsby can tell Tolkinghorn is that he lives, he is the other tenant of Mr. Crook. Remember? The one who supposedly gave himself to the dark side? Tolkien visits Mr. Crook and visits the room where Nemo is in, and it's covered in ink and filth and soot, and Nemo is on the bed, and there's a smell of opium in the air. There's the question, did he sell his soul? The chapter and the serial thus ends. Chapter 11, Our Dear Brother, Serial 4. Nemo is dead. Yep, he is dead. And Mr. Tolkinghorn is the one that found him. There's no clues. No one in the immediate vicinity knows him personally. It's a very mysterious affair. There's this dark-complexioned doctor that comes and assists in the ceremony, for lack of a better description, regarding the death. Tolkinghorn also stays as the person who found this person in his bed dead died of an opium overdose. He has quite odd behavior here, which I'm going to get into in Thursday's episode. Nemo seems like a man who has had a great fall. This is very important for the rest of the novel, so take care of that. Later in this chapter, the people involved in this case, the Beatle, the police, the doctor, Tolginghorn, they throw a town meeting and judge that it was a self-imposed opium overdose, accidental or not, they're not sure, but they conclude that he wasn't murdered. There are a couple testimonies that I won't get into uh, that are quite (laughs) interesting, they're contrasted a bit as well, and then there's a poetic close to this chapter with his only friend, Nemo's only friend, a chimney sweep named Joe, coming to sweep at the gate of Nemo's grave. Chapter 12, On the Watch. Lady Deadlock and her husband return from Paris to Chesney Wald. Lady Deadlock, when she gets back, Praises Rosa for her beauty, and her lady's maid is not pleased about it. There's quite a domestic tussle up (laughs) involving the maids. Uh, There's some dinners that they hold with company, and Dickens takes the liberty of making fun of politics and business in general during those dinners, which is quite hilarious. Tolkien Horn also visits at the end of this chapter and recounts the story of Nemo, to Lady Dedlock, sort of bringing this whole narrative full circle here, and I want to just keep a note here of it's important to keep track of the relationship between Tolkien Horn and Lady Dedlock as we continue. Finally, chapter 13, Esther's narrative. Richard again is indecisive about his profession, but luckily for us and for him, he decides on being a surgeon there's a visit to Kengi's cousin Badger in London. While they're in London, they take the liberty of going to a lot of sites and attractions, and Esther is being stalked by Guppy, who has a really dreadful appearance of just this despondence and someone who's sulking quite childishly at my dad, and he stares at her He just takes the liberty of after he works at the law firm, he stalks her and stares at her, which is quite disturbing. Mrs. Badger at the dinner between the Badgers and the Jarnaces and company. (laughs) Um, Mrs. Badger is kind of a colorful character right at the end here. She's had two previous husbands, a Navy person on a ship, and a professor, uh, an academic, and she takes a long time to describe the various instances that brought her to marry those two husbands before marrying the surgeon. Ada and Richard, they profess their young love to each other, to Esther, and also to Mr. Jarndyce. and a very weird occurrence, if I might <laughs> put it that way we'll keep track of that as we continue through the novel and finally we end at a point of mystery thank you dickens for giving us a cliffhanger at the end of serial four the dark complexioned surgeon who is at nemo's deathbed was at the dinner party all right and that is all from this first serialization of bleak house For now, we will be back later in the week to talk about the specifics of the various passages that I found interesting or notable from this section, and we'll be back with other things next Monday. We'll be doing a couple of book reviews to round out the month of April, so stay tuned for those as well. Thank you so much! A shout out last minute to my patrons. Thank you, patrons. You guys have been very supportive of this series in general, so thank you. (laughs) And until next time.